Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Slate's Audio Book Club. I'm Stephen Metcalf, Slate's critic at large, and I'm joined today by Jamie Ryerson, editor of the Sunday Times Magazine. Jamie, welcome. Thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. And Troy Patterson, Slate's TV critic. Hello, Troy. Howdy. But before we begin, Troy, why don't you uh, say a word about our sponsor? Well, I'll do just that. I'd like to take a moment to tell all you phonies out there about Audible.com. Audible carries more than 50,000 audiobooks, uh, which you can download right to the same device you have playing right now. And as a special deal for book club listeners, if you sign up for a one-book-a-month membership, you'll get a free book as a thank you. Um, it, it doesn't happen uh, that any of uh, J.D. Salinger's books are among the books that audible has in stock but uh you can find there some some rilke and some plath and uh other books that uh uh i think are possibly best read by teenagers more about which in a bit so uh once again that's uh audible.com the address to visit to get your free book is www.audiblepodcast.com slash slate uh all right let's get on with it Thank you, Troy. You're welcome. <laughs> and today, I think we have a real winner. We're going to talk about J.D. Salinger's Catcher in the Rye. I hope it goes without saying Catcher in the Rye is a massive cultural touchstone. At least it was for my generation and the generation immediately preceding me and immediately succeeding me. It's a book that sold some estimates claim as high as 65 million copies. And without the aid of Google or Wiki, I made a quick list of other cultural products that without Catcher in the Rye would be literally, I think, unthinkable, or at least influence them massively. All of the works of Wes Anderson, certainly. The movies Tadpole and Igby are almost direct facsimiles of Catcher in the Rye. The novel Prep, the movie The Good Girl, and also The Sopranos. I'm curious, Troy, do you remember The Sopranos having as its taking off point Catcher in the Rye? I do, yeah. I think I first read this book when I was 14, and I've only I picked it up intermittently, intermittently since then. Once to write a piece about the, uh, it's more like a deep caption than a piece <laughs> about about it's your specialty about right? ducklings and Tony Soprano. Yes, yeah. Uh, the the first the first inkling that you get that Tony Soprano is too human for his vocation is his preoccupation with the absence of the ducks in his swimming pool, which is a direct reference to Holden Caulfield. Other works that come out of it are Mao Two by Don DeLillo, which is a about a Salinger-like figure or or the active authors who recede fully from uh, public view, uh, Pynchon and Salinger being the two most famous examples. I believe Field of Dreams, the movie, is based on a novel 
called Shoeless Joe. And in it, the character who in the movie is played by James Earl Jones in the book is J.D. Salinger. And um, I had a couple of others. But uh, anyways, and that was just off the top of my head. Nonetheless, the occasion for our conversation is a provocative piece that came out a few weeks ago in the um, New York Times by Jennifer Schussler, an editor at the Book Review, in which she reported, it's a reported piece, not an opinion piece, um, that uh, Catcher in the Rye is losing its cultural relevancy for adolescents. And so uh, part of the excuse for our conversation today is to talk about a book that I think loomed rather large on the horizon of some of us who are now in our 30s and 40s, but may almost unthinkably not loom very large on the on the horizon of people uh, the horizons of people going through adolescence today. So that is a setup. Uh, Jamie, I, I was very curious to discover that this was the first time that you had read this book. So you're the perfect control group here uh, for someone who doesn't see it through the goggles of, of of adolescent your own adolescent martyrdom. And so I'm curious what what was your reaction to this book. Right. Well, uh, I mean, the one thing I would say is that's exactly right. I, I read the book um, about a month ago for the first time, um, somehow having you know navigated the various. But let's not bury the lead here. How, how did you miss it the first time around? Did right. you? Did someone put you in cold storage between uh, the ages of twelve and twenty-two? Or for for reasons uh, unbeknownst to me, um, there was a fair amount of uh, discretion given to individual English teachers in the uh, middle school that I went to, and um, my eighth grade teacher swapped out. Catcher in the Rye for uh, Black Boy by Richard Wright. Mm-hmm. Um, so I read that instead, and that that was how I missed it. Um, but then it didn't. And, but 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 at that point, well, this, part of the problem is it doesn't take any on any of the coloring of of Samizdat or taboo, or, and it, so it's not because it would have possibly been assigned. Therefore, had it were, were it banned, you would have found it right on right. your own. So I see now how you threaded the needle there and managed to miss it. Right, but I think it actually one reason. I mean, I think it's it's it's. Um, Part of part of what um, struck me about reading it was that you don't have to read it, or I thought you didn't have to read it. Mm-hmm. Um, through sort of a process of cultural osmosis, I thought I basically understood the book, both because I was familiar with the, the sorts of uh, movies and books that you were just uh, referring to, but also just in conversation, you feel like you, you pick it up. Um, and what do you do? You remember what your impression of it had been? Yeah, uh, I, I mean, I remember thinking this is the kind of classic um, portrait of. Uh, adolescent angst and rebellion. It is a critique of um, society in some way. It's it's a it's a, an attack on phoniness and adult values, and it's a kind of classic resistance to conformity narrative. I, I, I want to absolutely cut you off here before you tell us uh, uh, how you actually experienced the novel, because I just want to quickly hear from Troy. When did you experience it first, and how many times have you read it between the first time you encountered it and, and now? I don't specifically remember reading it. I have a sense that I read it when I was 14 and that I liked it. I, I don't know that I ever loved it. I must have been interested enough that I to keep reading Salinger. Um, and so I think I like... Uh, now I, I like the stories better. Uh, nine stories. Franny and Zooey uh, both seem a little um, faint and sappy to me now. So yeah, I, I read it at some vague point in my adolescence. And uh, I might also uh, begin to argue now that this is not the kind of book that should be read by someone over the age of 18. It's possible. I've looked into it here and there to write articles, to write about The Sopranos. Uh, Once reviewing uh, a book by James Fry to um, make a joke about sort of the the tone that he affects in his books and him against the world crumminess. 
And then the one bit of uh, like stage acting, significant stage acting that I ever did, was playing the lead in a in a college production of Six Degrees of Separation, where the uh, the lead character is this con man pretending to be Sidney Poitier's son, uh, who does this monologue about uh, about this book and why yeah, it another is another work that that is deriving some sense yeah. of itself from from the Salinger novel. Yeah, yeah, that's that. <laughs> and you. <laughs> I think I'm the, the the classic case and may in fact be one of the reasons why the book is being pushed into a, obscurity or or a, a new kind of disrepute, um, which is I'm a middle-aged man who encountered it the first time as an adolescent, uh, connected powerfully to it, reread it, I believe reread it in mid-early adulthood, whenever that falls but i mean somewhere between the ages 25 and 35 but i couldn't possibly tell you when and uh and then just reread it the other day as a, as a fully uh unrealized adult uh in in midlife so now jamie i i need to hear the punchline i need to know how it is you as our our human specimen in in our our a specimen in captivity here how you reacted to the the I'm curious to know how you reacted to this powerful substance known as uh, Catcher in the Rye. Uh, well, um, with, the, with the one caveat that, that um, my, um, my reaction to the drug uh, may have been somewhat specific to me, I expected to read a book um, in, in which everyone would be able to relate to the main character through their own experience, that this was a generalized portrait of something common to teenagerdom, um, rebelliousness, nonconformity, and... Um, I was surprised because I read it as a very uh, highly uh, specific story about um, about uh, a young grief, about what it is to be a sixteen-year-old uh, who, for three years, has been trying to figure out a way to process um, a terrible loss. Mm-hmm. And uh, that loss, we should say, is the death of his younger brother. The death brother of his younger brother, which is leukemia. four years before the uh, book is being narrated, uh, but three years before the the action uh, takes place in the book. So that, that's the, sh- the shorthand experience. And I was so startled by this um, that I poked around a little to see if other people had written about this. Um, and there are, there, I'm not the first person to have ever uh, seen it as a book um, that, um, that addresses grief. Um, uh, and in particular, I think it was um, Louis Menand, uh, an essay a couple of years ago, made the case that, that much of the um, sort of prep school rebel without a cause quality to the book is actually a, an effect of the book being kind of reread through the 60s aggressively mm-hmm. uh, in light of um, certain uh, literary virtues then then apprised, um, but which may not have existed in the late 40s, early 50s when, when Salinger was uh, himself writing it. Right. Yeah, the, the, the point he makes is that it's not, uh, it's not that Holden Caulfield thinks that um, he's not full of grief because the world is full of phonies, because he is full of grief, the world seems especially full of thought. appears to him as yeah. right i thought i thought that, that that reaction was was my, was my reaction um and um and so i was i was um i was happy to see that someone else had had it even though it made my reading less unique let, let, <laughs> I, I, let me trouble that reading sure. slightly i actually agree, I agree with you and i i agree with you only upon hearing you say it uh, until you said it i was reading it too much through the goggles of my own, you know, adolescent preoccupations and adolescent self. But now that you say it, it does seem to me a book about grief. But um, uh, uh, very much the way Bright Lights, another book that I, 
or I should say a book for me that I didn't read until far after the time in life when you're supposed to read it, Bright Lights, Big City, turns out to be completely a grief memoir. I mean, uh, all of the associations that attach to it via the 80s are very much like the associations that attach to Catcher in the Rye thanks to the 60s, and it gets misread as a kind of celebration of cocaine and partying when, in fact, it's very much about uh, loss and the, the um, intense indirection psychological indirection of, of, of grief. But but to trouble that slightly, it's not just the 60s that people read this book through. It's, it's the other work by Salinger. And Salinger, it seems to me, wrote about these kinds of characters from two angles. Angle one was post-traumatic stress, the effect of war on... Um, uh, on uh, the character's name in Banana Fish, uh, the older Seymour. brother, on Seymour, and in several of the short stories, which I agree with Troy are his, by far and away, I think his best work. Um, he writes beautifully on a small uh, canvas. And those books strike me as quite artistically successful when he's writing specifically about the effect of World War II and the grief of World War II, which appears in this book uh, at an angle a little bit. It comes in a little bit through the older brother right. who's been in the war. But then Salinger also writes about the the kind of, um, how would you describe it? The, the uh, hallowed nature of, ad, of, of adolescent, the adolescent point of view, and in a specifically religious way, uh, connecting it with Eastern religions and special access to special kinds of knowledge in Franny and Zoe, for example. And so I think when people encounter Holden, they, they're encountering a little bit of both. He's a little so, bit of a, of, of a mixture of those two kinds of, of writing. So it's not simply the 60s and the rebellion. There is a way in which he is meant to see the world from a privileged point of view, and that privileged point view is associated with childhood if we take the other books that Salinger wrote seriously. Yeah, uh, There's one um, uh, a very specific uh, moment in the book, which uh, maybe this is a good time to, to mention it in this context. One of the most baffling moments for me in my reading of the book was um, when he's talking about the characters in the Bible he associates with. Mm -hmm. uh, and he you know, doesn't like the disciples, um, if you remember. Um, yeah. But he says, I like Jesus okay, but the guy I really like was the guy in the tomb who, who cuts himself with stones. I don't know if that's an illusion that, that goes over people's heads or whether it was an illusion people got more often uh, in 1951. But this is, this is the, the uh, I think, the Gerasene uh, demoniac. This is this possessed man, man possessed by demons, uh, who is in a tomb uh, lacerating himself, not unlike Holden punching his fist through the garage windows, who is nonetheless able to see Christ for who he is. Mm. Um, this is the character in the Bible he relates to, a man who is possessed by demons, yeah. suffering, but gifted with sight, and punishing himself. Yeah. Uh, and it's an incredible uh, uh, self-identification that's not the kind of character in the Bible that most people single out, um, but is one that Holden does. Yeah, that's wonderful. I mean, in the midst of post-war affluence, Salinger characters are looking for some access or privileged access to authentic experience that the uh, culture of rising consumerism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, can't give them. Um, but... Uh, I mean, that's clunkily put, but something like that is happening in these books. But let me ask you, I, I still feel like the punchline is, is being withheld here. Did you did you like the book? Did I like the book? Uh, yeah, I liked it more than I thought, um, mm -hmm. probably precisely for that reason, because it felt like uh, many of the things that I, I suspected I wouldn't have liked when I was younger, uh, I liked, I, I made more allowances for. The fact that he is, um, that Holden is repetitious, uh, can be irritating, uh, and... Um, uh, is not always as funny as he thinks he is, though he, he can be quite incisive. These all felt to me much more forgivable as a portrait of somebody who is angry in ways he himself maybe doesn't totally understand. Mm -hmm. um, someone who's lashing out, in, uh, not necessarily in the service of a noble cause, 
which is incidentally how I think his, his high school teacher um, sees his whole predicament, mm. um, but as somebody who's confused. Uh, so as a, as a, as a, I suppose a sort of a psychological uh, realism to the, to the character, I, I found that th- those details more affecting. Whereas I think I think if I if, if I weren't reading it in that way, I would have found him uh, more grating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so Troy, uh, now I need to hear. I take it you don't like the book, and and uh, I'm curious to hear hear why. No, I like the book. It's a good book. It's not. It's not a great book by any stretch. And in making that case, I wanted to start talking about kind of the shape of it. Like Stephen was talking before about um, the fact that Salinger is truly a a short story writer, I think, that he works well on a small canvas. This book isn't quite a novel. Um, I think it's not even – it's not a novel in the form of monologue. It seems much more like a monologue in itself, a sensation that's kind of heightened by – all the many references to um, stage plays and films. But Pick that up right after you answer this question for me and clear it up. Is he? Do you think that he's speaking to a psychiatrist in the book, or he he indicates that he's in in some kind of a sanatorium? Or, uh, but is is this a Portnoy like uh, dialogue with a mental health professional, or is that just a, a perverse reading of it? That's. The standard reading of it. Oh, it is okay. Um, well, it is a or it, it maybe uh, it's the common reading of it. Common, in okay. A couple senses, <laughs> uh, but um, I'm common in both senses, uh, so I'm not offended. I, I, we're supposed to believe that he is in a sanatorium being treated for TB, or at least that's something I read this morning <laughs> briefly. He does, he um, does say that he, he part of the breakdown was that he, they thought he was might be getting TB, but uh, I think at the end he, he certainly. Um, Mentions that uh, that he's been talking to a he keeps calling them a psychoanalyst, which in a sanatorium is probably not exactly right. But 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 um, uh, anyway. So if he is if he is having a session with a, a, a some sort of psych, psychoanalytic professional or whatever, it's not the only one he's spoken to because he's referring to yeah, others. Yeah, that's so what I didn't not, think he was. It's not a precise reading of the novel, probably. I didn't right. think he was speaking to. So an he is speaking. Therapist. So you, as the reader, not that, no, that was my reading. Okay. Yeah, but. yeah. It actually, for that matter, the first the first sentence is he's setting himself in contrast to David Copperfield. So this is a self consciously literary performance as opposed to some sort of. Psychiatric confession. Okay. Can I, may I intervene at one point with that? What I think is a, a very strange point about the David Copperfield moment. Mm-hmm. He, he opens the book, as, as I'm sure everybody knows, uh, even if you haven't finished the book, uh, by saying, "I'm not David Copperfield. I'm not going to give you the David Copperfield crap." His name is Caulfield. The first page of David Copperfield. David Copperfield is born with a call on his head. Oh. So th- there's right from the get-go. I feel like Holden is telling you. I mean, this is not an illusion that I think everyone is supposed to get, mm-hmm. but it's there. His name is Caulfield, Copperfield, mm-hmm. Call. I mean, there's a way in which he's both saying, I'm not David Copperfield, and in some way, I think, telling you not to totally take him at his word. Uh, that's terrific, though, because Dick Dickens obviously is known for painting on the very large social canvas and making a statement about a specific time in Victorian England, which is meant to have political valence, whereas Salinger you associate with the small canvas, the canvas, the psychological canvas, the narcissistic universe, the contracted universe. But by what is Salinger trying to tell us by associating uh, the the book with uh, Dickens in, a, in an explicit way? I don't Jamie? have an answer. <laughs> I, I, I took it. Uh, I took it as a more uh, uh, a formal way of of of. Um, of getting readers who do who do um, draw that connection 
to stop taking Holden at his word right from the get-go. I agree with that. But, Troy, is it possible that this book is written on a larger canvas than it's given credit for, that it's about the deterioration of a social class at a specific moment in time uh, and a small world old, of old New York falling apart um, from its interior out? It, uh, that's the way I read it this time, and maybe I'm uh, putting thoughts in your head that aren't there. Uh, that's an interesting reading. Um, I'm going to answer this question by sort of swinging around to what I'd begun to say before, um, sort of about how the the novel feels to read and how it's structured. It strikes me as sort of a bit thin. There's not... I mean, there, there's this kind of like accumulation of incident, but there's not an actual plot. It's this kind of sort of like loose, sort of three-day picaresque of um, this kid's kind of bashing around from his from his prep school to Manhattan and um, indulging these um, sort of retrospective digressions. Um, but there's... Uh, I, I don't even know how you'd begin to diagram the plot of it. There's no action, <laughs> really. Uh, just a series of events. Um, and in place of an actual sort of climax, there's um, this sort of reverie with... Um, uh, Holden's sainted kid sister, ten-year-old uh, Phoebe, um, innocence and and saintliness incarnated, riding around on uh, the carousel in Central Park, which is a little cute, affecting, uh, poignant in its way. Forty-nine uh, percent poignant, fifty-one percent cute. I don't know. <laughs> I um, I can't believe I'm in the position of having to defend the cute and the potentially smarmy, but um, I'll throw in my two cents just by saying that I was shocked to discover how much um, I, I really, really genuinely enjoyed and was affected by the book rereading it. And I'll give a couple of reasons why. First, I recently, I think both occasions being audiobook clubs have, have reread novels that were very important to me previous and previously in my life. One was The Great Gatsby and one was Anna Karenina. And if you had to make a kind of crude little bell curve on one end you would say well Anna Karenina is just an unassailable masterpiece and almost regardless of what your experience is you need to genuflect before it and whatever. I was surprised this guy read it in the new translation and found it cold which many people who read the new translation agree with uh, it didn't move me as much as it had the first time I read it when I felt unequivocally it was the best novel I'd ever read uh, rereading The Great Gatsby I was stunned to discover that the book was almost completely unmoving to me that some of the writing was as beautiful as I remembered it, as just heart-cleavingly beautiful as I remembered it. But as a whole, it was, I thought, somewhat preposterous in parts. Troy, we actually did this book club together, that it was mm -hmm. prepo preposterously plotted in parts and oddly ill-felt and that the central relationship was unmoving between Gatsby and Daisy and uh, whatever. And I expected this was going to fall even further in the spectrum uh, away from Anna Karenina, that its assailability would be immediately obvious and that, in fact, he would be grating and whining and that it's a, a kind of limited performance, monologue performance. I found the book quite affecting, and I think for the very reason that it's becoming less automatically credible to a young audience, I do feel as though, to a certain degree, uh, the culture of cynicism on one hand uh, uh, and success on the other has eclipsed this book as a possible touchstone of importance to adolescents, who, as Jenny Schussler's article made clear, can't relate to this figure at all. They just don't. They they see they see or recognize none of his virtues. They find him merely an irritant, and um, I I I need to persist in saying this reflects 
on them and less on on Holden. But uh, but I well, what what are what are his virtues? Let me begin by saying before I defend Holden, let me say that the, the three things struck me that that I didn't remember uh, specifically. One is he seems more mentally unhinged than I remember him. He's constantly told by his companions to stop talking so loudly in public spaces. This is something Salinger reiterates quite consciously, I think. We're meant to perceive him as inappropriate um, via something other than his own consciousness of himself. He doesn't see himself this way at all, but he's he's constantly speaking too loudly, too quickly, and too urgently in public spaces and embarrasses the people that he's with. The second thing I noticed is that even as he derides everyone in his immediate presence, he's extremely needy and very lonely, and he wants company badly. He's always saying that the person who's with him is leaving too quickly, and even as he's torn them down internally or said something openly nasty to them, he almost virtually begs them to stay. This happens over and over and over again in the book, starting with Ackley, who's sort of the most unpleasant person uh, in the novel, and he he uh, goes in search of Ackley for comfort from this person who he's completely rejected otherwise after he gets beaten up by his roommate Stradlitter. And then over and over and over in the book, he's sort of begging people to have a drink with him, to stay. Uh, um, so his desperation came through in a way that hadn't uh, before. And then the third was, um, gets at what Jamie was talking about, which is his propensity to burst into tears when he himself is not aware that grief is the emotion that he's experiencing and or loss or whatever it is. And, and, and he describes it as if it came out of the blue, the tears came completely out of the blue though even you even though you as a reader are aware that he's unhinged and quite quite sad and so um let me defend his virtues with that as a context i think first of all let me defend salinger by saying that salinger is very separate from this character i think that that salinger's investment in holden as a kind of saint uh is is much lower uh i experience is a, a much of a much lower intensity with each time I reread the book. I think it's a sure. performance on Challenger's part the same way Huck Finn is a performance on Twain's part. Nonetheless, Twain is getting at something about the nature of civilization and inequity through Huck Finn. And I think Salinger is too, in a way, that, that, that there is a way in which Holden is completely wrong about himself and utterly right about the people around him, and that he does see others with a clarity that rivals the opacity with which he's capable of understanding himself. And um, and so it's possible to dislike him intensely for his lack of self-knowledge and his self-centeredness. Um, at the same time, I think he absolutely fucking nails it several times in the presence of adult hypocrisy. And I think what people don't respond to in the book anymore is the idea that that should be privileged because we've acclimated. I, I mean, I, I, not to be too romantic about it, but there is a moment in the history of the reception of the book that is very symbolic, which is Mark David Chapman sitting down on the curb stone after he shot John Lennon and reading Catcher in the Rye and sort of permanently giving the book a bad name. And not undeservedly so. Jamie, you said something very funny before we started recording, which is how you anticipate other people see you when you ride the subway with a copy of this novel, that it's what used to be maybe a, a totem of authenticity now is 
something Homeland Security might want to look into. I mean, it's sort of the book for crazies, um, benevolent crazies everywhere. But I, I guess I defend it on the grounds that we've snuffed out the old romantic ideal, which extends way beyond Holden Caulfield to John Keats and Nietzsche, right, and Blake. I mean, the idea that there is something about being on the edge of sanity that gives you a, a, a privileged access to the shape and structure of the world and its uh, its falsity. That's my defense of the book. Now, I, I've, I've left you in stupor of silence, so I, no one agrees with Oh, me. it's not a stupor of silence. I'm, I'm just trying to figure out where to go from here. I think you did an eloquent job of sort of describing um, why or how carefully Salinger drew Holden as a character uh, and, and sort of I think you did a great job of getting at the contradictions that bring him alive. Don't and be nice. The, and the, well, Don't patronize me. Flame This is alive. a rhetorical tactic. I'm supposed to concede <laughs> something before I go into a different direction. Should we read from the book? Why don't we do that and, and anchor the conversation in specifics? We can do that. Yeah, you were talking um, just now about the contradictions of Holden Caulfield, the, the contradictions that bring him alive. And one of the interesting ones is that he, for someone who um, spends a lot of time railing against snobs and snobbiness, he's something of a snob himself. There are a couple things that struck me rereading the book. One of them, I'd forgotten how much of it was about sort of sex and about Holden's trying, having this um, sort of storm of teenage hormones and trying to figure out how to negotiate that. Uh, and that seems worth coming back to. Um, but it's also about class in a way that I hadn't realized before. And I'm not even sure that it's about class, but class figures in it uh, in ways that I'd forgotten. I think on this occasion, uh, and to back up to remind everyone, yeah, uh, Holden is a, is a prep school student. And a, a rather rich one at that. Um, His father's a corporate lawyer, and he says he's you know throws money away, backing Broadway shows. His father has money to burn. And yeah, they live in a Upper East Side, presumably yeah. apartment. I, I think the the first big tip off is around page twenty when you know he's been using this this kind of vulgar demotic language, very slangy, and then uh, throws the word chiffonier and <laughs> describing the furniture <laughs> in his dorm room. Yeah. Uh, at any rate, along those lines talking about um, uh, Holden's snobbiness and the way he may or may not recognize it. Uh, I'm going to read um, a section from the, uh, from the middle when he's just, had, uh, he's just had breakfast. He is having breakfast. What page? Uh, I'm on page 108. And I think there's only one edition of this book, right, at this point, unless you have some antique one that still has a picture of Salinger on it. Salinger demanded that his picture never appear on it again. And, but I mean, for ages now, it's been published by Little Brown or whoever it is. And so I think yeah. if you're holding a copy of this book, it's highly you, likely you can your page is... too, I think. But, okay, right. correlated. But it's with probably ours. page 108. Yeah. Um, he's in New York City um, having breakfast next to some nuns. They didn't seem to know what the hell to do with their suitcases, so I gave them a hand. They're these very inexpensive-looking suitcases, the ones that aren't genuine leather or anything. It isn't important, I know, but I hate it when somebody has cheap suitcases. It sounds terrible to say it, but I can even get to hate somebody just looking at them if they have cheap suitcases with them. 
Something happened once. For a while, when I was at Elkton Hills, I roomed with this boy, Dick Slagle, who had these very inexpensive suitcases. He used to keep them under the bed instead of on the rack so that nobody would see them standing next to mine. It depressed holy hell out of me, and I kept wanting to throw mine out or something, or even trade with him. Mine came from Mark Cross, and they were genuine cowhide and all that crap, and I guess they cost quite a pretty penny. But it was a funny thing. Here's what happened. What I did, I finally put my suitcases under my bed instead of on the rack, so that old Slagle wouldn't get a goddamn inferiority complex about it. But here's what he did. The day after I put mine under the bed, he took them out and put them back on the rack. The reason he did it, it took me a while to find out, was because he wanted people to think my bags were his. He really did. He was a very funny guy that way. I'm going to stop there. Do you think that's the reason Dick Slagle put the suitcases back? Is his name Dick Slagle? His name is Dick Slagle. Why did he put the suitcase? Yeah, I I think that that's sort of an astute reading of of the situation on Holden's uh, part, but yet he he either doesn't have the, the sort of perspective or the the right kind of introspection to to sort of wonder if what he'd done in the first place was um, it's, itself rude or or intensely patronizing. I was thinking yeah. it was possible that the kid put the suitcases back. I mean, this passage really struck me when I read it, too, that the kid put the suitcases back as a way of saying, screw you, I don't need you to, don't take pity on me, don't hide your suitcases, I don't care about your suitcases. Right. I mean, that's possible but right. one possible reading of it i love everything i had was bourgeois as hell says this kid to him yeah even my fountain pen was bourgeois he borrowed it off me all the time but it was bourgeois anyway we only roomed together about two months then we both asked to be moved <laughs> right. and then it goes on the thing is it's really hard to be roommates with people if your suitcases are much better than theirs if yours are really good ones and theirs aren't uh and there might be some truth to that but there's this uh, there are these notions of I don't even know if they're notions getting kicked around, but it seems odd that a book that a book sold sixty five million copies and it's sort of about uh, it's not even like it's a, about it's not a story about a prince it's kind of a story about a spoiled brat mm-hmm. um, and we don't the 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 popular reader doesn't find it off-putting it doesn't it doesn't react against that or at least well it's starting to now we should say jenny schussler one of the things she says in her piece is that uh uh young readers today see him that's so funny the various things they say they see him as a prep schooler who's totally spoiled uh they now do perceive him as a spoiled brat they wonder why he hasn't taken his prozac and just shut up i mean a number of things some of which seem to me legitimate some seem legitimately repulsive but but uh jamie i'm curious do you hear um, Holden's voice there? Do you hear Salinger's voice there? When uh, There are a number of class markers in the book that are very definite. We're meant to experience them as that. And certainly he, Holden is aware of his class, social, social class. Do you think that there's an element of class satire to this book uh, uh, or not at all? I'm going to have to think about that before I answer. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I'll give you a second to think about it, but I just wrote down some things because they really struck me on this reading. Um, skate keys, the Lunces, Andover, brass orchestras and hotel bars. Um, some of those are class markers and others of, the, of, of those aren't, but, but they all are very specific to a time that now is completely over. I mean, Andover still exists, but but but... 
there is a way in which this book is a time capsule that maybe young readers could relate to for the first 20, 25, 30 years after it came out. But now these things are just disappearing completely. Um, and it doesn't remind anybody of anything extant at all. And and certainly part of that is the relationship Holden has as a rich kid, let's face it, a rich kid who goes to prep school um, uh, and to people in the book who are, uh, I mean, a famous incident in the book is he's lured into having a prostitute come to his room by a uh, elevator uh, man at the um, hotel he's staying in. He doesn't really want to do it. He agrees to it. There's a dispute over money and he gets beaten up and roughed up by the, by the guy. His encounters with the world that aren't uh, with the wider world that aren't part of the small world that aren't part of the world of privilege tend to be brutal and make him very afraid and make him feel very small. So certainly the book is in some respects about social class, but whether or not satire is the right word to apply to that, uh, those experiences unclear. Yeah, I have, I have trouble, um, uh, thinking of it in terms of, of class, uh, satire, Maybe because, uh, as in the the passage that uh, Troy read for us, uh, Holden always seems to be saddened by encounters uh, along these lines. Um, the the suitcase thing. Uh, he's maybe reacting in a snobby way, but it's making him intensely uh, uncomfortable. And uh, maybe this is um, maybe this isn't in the text. I'd have to look back at the passage Troy just read. But there, there always seems to me to be a, a tone of. Uh, sadness. If you remember in the prostitute scene, that this, the, the, what most moves him about the prostitute is um, is that she has purchased this um, affordable green dress and that she wants to hang it up. And he thinks about her going to buy it in the store and um, and no one knowing that she's a prostitute. I suppose at some literal level, it's the fact that uh, she's kind of moving incognito that's supposed to be depressing. But to me, the, the emotional uh, kind of core of that scene is her insisting on hanging up this to him relatively cheap cheap dress exactly. um, because yeah. it matters so much to her. Yeah. Right. To me, that doesn't feel like a class satire. Um, I mean, it was, I mean, I don't feel like we are um, puncturing something in in uh, Holden in his world, but I do feel that um, that it's it's some way telling about class that uh, that 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 these sorts of um, discrepancies uh, when he encounters them are are so baffling to him and often mm-hmm. so moving to him that he often invests the emotion in those moments. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I wouldn't say it's a class satire at all, but I think that that uh, that Holden's sort of experience of class and his ideas about it have... Uh, it's sort of a nature of his alienation that he can't... For all his hatred of sort of uh, rich phonies with their show-offy Cadillacs, he's not... Um, uh, sort of a man of the people, Holden is, and so he's he's only further alienated in these encounters with with blue collar people, with cab drivers, with these uh, sort of uh, in the in the hotel ballroom with these um, tourist ladies from Seattle. Right. Their uh, funny accents and low ca- class approaches to look. They're ordering life. summer drinks in the in the winter. They're ordering <laughs> Tom Collins, <laughs> right, right, right. right? Yeah. I mean, it's that kind of stuff. Right. But, yeah. And and meanwhile, while he's um, sort of taking the train into New York after leaving prep school, he's sitting down next to this woman, this, this attractive older woman who's the um, the mother of a classmate. And it, it seems pretty clear to me that his, you know, his uh, sexual attraction to her does have something to do with the fact that she's wearing a lot of uh, big gems underneath right. her gloves. Yeah. 
I actually agree very much with something, Toy, you said, which was an experience of rereading the book and being surprised at the sexuality of it. Uh, I had never linked this book in my head before with Portnoy's complaint, and, and it, in many ways, is not like Portnoy's complaint, but in, in ways that surprised me, it remind, reminded me of it, that, that, that it must have been shocking to the ears and the sensibilities of its readers, uh, less for some of the language than for his very frank sexuality. In fact, he does admit to his yearnings in a pretty open way, uh, but he has an extremely Jamie, I think we could all admit, kind of complicated relationship to his sexuality and to his desires, and um, he tries to work these out. As all teenagers out. should. Right, no, as all, te- as all teenagers, teenagers should. Um, and, and he tries to work this out in part by visiting uh, this guy, Carl Luce, is that his name? Or? Yeah, I think that, yeah, the, the, the uh, friend of his from prep school is a couple years older. Yeah. Uh, seems to have had some sort of uh, uh, kind of resident counselor type function in, in his previous school um, and would hold forth on uh, adult sex um, and then uh, uh, sort of disappear before they had any of the answers they really wanted. <laughs> <laughs> and I love, a detail I do love is that, is that Carl Luce is this egomaniac, at least in Holden's telling, is an egomaniac who felt that every conversation had to end precisely when he exited, when Carl right. Luce exited the room and it seemed very disappointed or even hostile if it continued when he left and uh, but whether or not we speak about Carl Luce uh, anymore uh, the did it strike you that there's uh, there's a lot of sex in the book and that uh, this is sort of central to Holden's preoccupations uh, yeah it did strike me um, not so much uh, again the the um, the graphic nature of, of anything he said um, uh, so much as the um, kind of casual acceptance of uh, people having sex in the back seat of a car with people in the front seat, you know, the, the kind of, um, when he, when he hires the prostitute, there's, you know, he's a virgin. He, he, uh, he, he calls to the prostitute. There's, there's no real sense he's taken any momentous step here, either with respect to his own sexuality well, or with uh, respect to the, the act of hiring the prostitute. I didn't, I found that, uh, I found it, he was strangely, uh, um, unquestion yeah, that, that that whatever issues came up didn't have to do with, um, you know, uh, oh my God, I'm paying for sex with this prostitute who is this woman. You know, this is the first time I'm going to have sex. It's going to be with a, you know, none of that. Uh, right. I don't know. Well, I think that might be more about sort of attitudes in the with the 1940s about prostitution. I don't. know. What strikes me is that. Holden seems to think, and there are points at which Salinger almost seems to agree that sort of sexual sophistication is the, uh, that is part of this this whole sort of fallen world right um that when his his uh, roommate is is parking with the with the girl in the back seat that there's something really detestable about him and that the um the visit that you know what he calls the the prostitute i think that's the Maybe the second occasion in the book that he's talking about whores after um, mentioning that his older brother, D.B., has um, kind of uh, fallen away from the literary life to go to Hollywood to be a prostitute. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I think that that's a a metaphor that's that's carefully chosen. Yeah, and elsewhere, and, and, uh, you know, I think that Holden... It's it's an interesting portrait of, of sort of adolescent rage and confusion about sort of like hormones and what mm-hmm. sex is mm-hmm. um, but uh, you know looking at the book again you, you'll note that the the sort of the 
the phonies, the evil people are sort of the sexual sophisticates, whereas the you know the again the the one good person in the book is the is innocent young sort of ten year old presexual Phoebe. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with a lot of what you say, but but I disagree with it, disagree with it in this respect, which is that what, what was so interesting to me about the sex in the book. It wasn't like Portnoy, where Portnoy Alexander Portnoy is conscious of the intensity of his desires and the depravity of his desires over and against a prevailing sexual morality, which dis- public sexual morality, which disapproves of them. This is not at all the formula of Catcher in the Rye. Um, uh, in Catcher in the Rye, there's a, 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 a teenage, a widespread teenage acceptance of sexual relations um, into which Holden can't quite fit the structure of his own or the nature of his own desires, right? He, he, and what's interesting about that, too, it's not simply that – because remember when he has the fight with his roommate, Stradlitter, it's because he's gone out on a date with a girl that Holden loves. I mean, genuinely loves at some level. Mm-hmm. And he feels as though Stradlitter sees her – in purely sexually instrumental terms, and this enrages Holden, uh, and he attacks this much larger, more athletic person who essentially beats the crap out of him uh, subsequently. But it's not that Holden wants to see, is her name Jean Gallagher, as sexually Jane, pure. Jane. Uh, Jane Gallagher, sorry. And it's Stradlitter who gets it wrong as Jean Gallagher. It's not that he wants to see her as sexually pure. In fact, he wants to have relations with her. So it's not simply that Holden associates sexuality with debasement. It's it's And he says this. He says, in fact, he's not the classic Freudian case. He doesn't put it that way, but that the classic Freudian neurotic, right, can't both esteem a woman and sleep with her at the same time. But but Holden says his problem is the opposite. It's that it's, in fact, that he's incapable of doing what all these other teenage boys do, which is seeking sexual gratification from women that they have no respect or, or liking for, that, in fact, his affections and his sexuality do align, and that's his right. problem. Although it's interesting to say and to note that with, with uh, Jane, uh, with whom he spends the, the summer in Maine, uh, uh, he, his, his uh, love or interest... Uh, uh, in her is genuine, um, but do you, uh, if you remember his um, his actual romantic interactions with her are quite moving because they're all in again in the context of of, of consolation mm. comfort. Yeah. You know, he he oh, sure. he kisses her when she's uh, you know been upset by this kind of uh, father-in-law type character um, who's uh, somehow uh, you know greatly upset her. And Holden says, "We almost had sex once." Um, if you remember what he did, it's when she's crying hysterically and he's kissing all her tears. And the only time she touches him is she holds his hand in the movie theater. But then he, he says that she, she reaches his hand, her hand back and puts it on his neck the way you would with a kid. Uh, so his, his relations with her are, are intense, um, but they're all in terms of, 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 of comfort and consolation yeah. and care and right. not in terms of any kind of carnal uh, relation at all. Right. And, and again, I think that that's um, sort of an image that Salinger chose with care the the sort of putting the hand on his neck like a kid. Uh, I think that I feel like that goes toward my point of, of of Salinger. This is something that happens in Banana Fish and in other stories too. Um, uh, is it's not quite comfortable with the idea of sort of like um, a full round sort of adult kind of love or sexual relationship. It's, it's that uh, he finds it uh, contaminating in some way mm-hmm. that there's. He is interested in sort of a, sort of a purity. There's mm. uh, much in the book about convents and monasteries. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I thought another interesting point of the of the, of the Schussler article is that, that that when 
Salinger wrote the book, there was no youth culture to speak of. In other words, there was no uh, – there was no – There was no rock and roll, for one thing. (laughs) In the course of this conversation, I'm making notes here about Holden's uh, rage and self-pity and it's kind of yearning after some kind of spirituality. Yeah. It's it's kind of like putting together – I don't know, like a recipe for a Smashing Pumpkins album or no, an well, emo hit. Well, exactly, but that but that between the carousel in Central Park and the Wicker Club, where you go and get a daiquiri, right? Um, there's nothing that there really isn't anything uh, to comfort him or or give him any kind of a public right. outlet, and so it has to be a troubled private dialogue that he engages in, which is another reason why the book has sort of been has been essentially obsoleted by. Uh, the culture that came that came after it, but this leads to another question. I was uh, one of the things I remembered vividly about the book is he goes very near the end of the book. He goes and um, spends the night, or is intends to spend the night uh, at the house of at the apartment, the fancy apartment of a prep school teacher of it of his, who's gone on to marry a w- much older wealthy woman, lives on Sutton Place, and teaches at NYU. And they're a picture of. What, Jamie? I'm there a picture of sort of cultured urban sophistication. There are highball glasses. There's been a party there earlier in the evening. And um, the uh, man gives Holden what seems like the best adult advice that he receives in the book, the most caring and cogent uh, adult conversation that that, that that Holden has is with Mr. Antolini. It may be limited in some ways, but it certainly exceeds by a serious magnitude uh, what most of the other adults try to say in order to reach him. And Antolini seems to know, and I think to his credit, seems to know that he can't really reach this kid tonight because he's a little drunk and distraught, uh, in general because he may be falling apart. Uh, but he nonetheless acknowledges that in a way and says that the words I basically says to Holden the words I'm saying can't reach you right now and he even writes down some of them so he'll see them the next day and Holden tells us he still has that piece of paper but then and I remembered this vividly from the book even though I hadn't reread it in at least 15 years he wakes up and he discovers what oh, he discovers uh, that um, uh, that um, Mr. Antolini is sitting on the floor, uh, I believe still in his robe, mm-hmm. uh, uh, stroking uh, Holden's uh, forehead uh, yeah. while he sleeps. He says patting, which is interesting, which is less suggestive than stroking. What do, what do you think is – I'm really curious without trying to load it, uh, front load it with uh, my own feelings. What, what do you think is going on there? Uh, I actually confess that I um, – I've been kind of happily able to leave it uh, uh, ambiguous. Um, yeah. I, I, I find that whichever way I come down on it, I'm I'm less satisfied as a reader than than uh, I, I almost feel as though it's it's it's, it's he, he as you said with words like padding. I, I hadn't thought of that particular example, but that there's a way in which it's very carefully constructed so that you can't quite get it. You, you don't. Um, you, it, basically, we should just say it, you don't really know whether he's making a pass at Holden, but this is absolutely how Holden perceives it. Sure, Holden yeah. has a, a moment of. I don't know. I mean, this is to settle the argument in one way, but he has a moment of homosexual panic or whatever, or maybe he is being uh, put upon by this this gentleman or whatever. But he gets up and he leaves the apartment quite flustered with Mr. Antolini following him to the elevator saying, you are a strange boy. Uh, Troy, how do you – what do you make of this scene? Um, I do not think that Mr. Antolini is making a pass at Holden. That's so interesting. Um, re- what he was doing was he was sitting on the floor right next to the couch in the dark and all, and he was sort of petting me or patting me on the goddamn head. Does he say petting? Petting. petting 
and he was sort of petting me or patting me oh, on the goddamn head. Oh, that's interesting. Um, which seems again, it's sort of the sort of gesture you would lavish on a child. Uh, you know, if I were trying to seduce an unconscious person, I don't know if that's how I would start. <laughs> uh, but it makes a big difference whether you're being petted or patted. And I think Salinger was an extremely careful writer with language. Uh, um, and I, I think Jamie's right. He's trying to leave it ambiguous by saying petting or patting or putting those words in Holden's mouth. No? I don't Well, okay. Then what's the, then the dialogue? What the hell are you doing? Holden says. And then... Uh, the teacher says nothing. I'm simply sitting here admiring Dash, and then Holden cuts him off. What are you doing anyway? Um, I don't. I don't see anything quite like lascivious in the gesture. It's it's weird. It's it's weird, but it it just uh, it, uh, I find it more paternal than anything else. Maybe one, weird in its paternalism. One thing that's unclear to me. I don't know how you you two read it. Was how how much time has passed. Because it's very possible that Holden has has just fallen asleep, yeah. And uh, because Holden says, "I don't know how much time has passed." Yeah. Right. Uh, if it's if it's a matter of uh, Holden falls asleep and uh, Mr. Antolini's, you know, taking one last look at him, make sure he's okay before mm-hmm. he, yeah, he exactly. himself goes to bed. That's one thing. If it's yeah. been three hours and Mr. Antolini's come back downstairs uh, to check on him, maybe it takes on different overtime. Yeah, it's funny. I, I, I for what it's worth, when I first read the book and I think the second time I read the book I perceived it as a, as a pass and that, that Holden was reading it correctly and then I was shocked to discover I don't experience that at all this time in part maybe because I'm now a parent and I know exactly what it's like to completely unsexually uh, touch a sleeping child with nothing but love and and possibly innocent love and and um, for exactly the reason that someone like Mr. Antolini might, if you read it innocently, which is he sees that this child is is shattering before his very eyes and he can't help him and he feels helpless. And the degree of his affection for the child does nothing to help him communicate with or help help him. And and so he goes to the sleeping boy and he, and he pats his head innocently. I, that, that reading struck me as entirely plausible where it hadn't when I had read it before. Jamie, why don't, we, why don't we wrap up the discussion by reading from one more time from the book? Okay, uh, the, the passage I'm going to read is, uh, I guess, one of the, the uh, two passages uh, from which the book uh, takes its title. I think the one we're going to read is, uh, or the one that we're going to read is, uh, I think, the uh, less familiar one, uh, the one that, that people who read the book remember less well. Um, the, 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 I think the famous scene comes uh, when he's in the, the room with uh, Phoebe's bedroom. It's actually his older brother's bedroom. She's... She uh, likes to stay in it, um, and uh, she, there's a number of challenges that Phoebe makes to Holden. Is there anything you like in the world? Is there anything you'd like to do? Um, and his, his response to both of those questions, int- it, 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 to me, is very interesting. I mean, when she says, is there anything you like, uh, he can come up with his dead brother. He can come up with a boy who committed suicide at his first prep school, and he can come up with the nuns. Mm-hmm. It's very strange. Um, then she says, is there anything you'd want to do, be a lawyer, a doctor, and he says, uh, the only thing I want to be is this catcher in the, in the rye. And it's, uh, it's uh, based on a kind of Freudian slip of his own misremembering of this poem, which I guess has also been set to music, um, when a body you know, meets, meets a body. He remembers it as catch. Um, and he says, that, you know, in my mind, to catch, to catch a body coming through the rye is to kids playing in a big rye field. They can't see where they're going. There's a cliff. Some of them are in danger of falling off. I'm the one who catches them. Uh, that's what I want to do. That's the one thing I'll grow up to do. Um, 
uh, so nonetheless, this comes up uh, earlier in the um, in the book when he's killing time um, uh, on one of his days here uh, before he, he's meeting this uh, girlfriend of his. Uh, he's wandering up Broadway, and the passage uh, is as follows. Um, it wasn't as cold as it was the day before, but the sun still wasn't out, and it wasn't too nice for walking. But there was one nice thing. This family that you could tell just came out of some church were walking right in front of me, a father, a mother, and a little kid about six years old. They looked sort of poor. The father had on one of those pearl gray hats that poor guys wear a lot when they want to look sharp. He and his wife were just walking along, talking, not paying any attention to their kid. The kid was swell. He was walking in the street instead of on the sidewalk, but right next to the curb. He was making out like he was walking a very straight line, the way kids do. And the whole time he kept singing and humming. I got up closer so I could hear what he was singing. He was singing that song, If a Body Catch a Body Coming Through the Rye. He had a pretty little voice, too. He was just singing for the hell of it, you could tell. The car zoomed by, brakes screeched all over the place. His parents paid no attention to him. And he kept on walking next to the curb and singing, If a body catch a body coming through the rye. It made me feel better. It made me feel not so depressed anymore. It's, a, it's, a, it's, an, it's an incredible passage. Yeah. I, I don't know what your reaction is. Like. It's the, so it's the it's the kid's mistake to say catch. I took it as it's Holden's. But you think he's hearing it wrong? Yeah, but and which is certainly possible. Troy, would you would you make of that? I don't know the 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 one note that I oh the marginalia I made I made when I read this the other day. The one thing I scribbled on this page was sentimentalizes the poor. I, I kind of I, I don't know if I got derailed by my class reading. Well, well yeah, it's the the family's coming out of church and they look sort of poor. Why does this family need to be? What's the significance of their being poor? Why can't they be a middle class family? How does that change the mood of the passage and the meaning of the book? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to, um, uh, to to forward some sort of Marxian reading or anything, but um, <laughs> we're thinking about which passage to close with. And there's the very famous passage that Jamie alluded to, which is the one that I remembered vividly. And then I had completely forgotten this one. I think it's just really interesting to what you remember and don't remember and what comes back to you and what doesn't. But, but Troy, when we suggested reading the famous one, um, you uh, demurred. Um, this book really didn't move you. I mean, no. It, I, I think it's a young man's book. Yeah. Like it's 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 uh, it's it's kind of like an emo band that I'm just sort of too old to hear properly. <laughs> breaking, right? absolutely breaking my heart. Um, and I think that that part of it is that I mean, I, I think that as a portrait of sort of adolescent angst, it's uh, vivid and. Uh, compelling and Holden is a really great character. I think the characters, among the problems, is that the character is better than the book, hmm. uh, if that makes any sense. Like the, the storyline really doesn't have much to say for itself. Mm-hmm. Um, the book feels thin to me, um, and I, I, I sort of I understand the, the sort of the narrative and rhetorical tactic of the sort of the repetitions and these cascades of language and these digressions, but. Uh, but yeah, I think that all could have been achieved more efficiently without sort of losing the rhythms. Hmm. Uh, the passage that I read before felt really awkward coming out of my mouth. Mm-hmm. And it's also that reading it aloud kind of really demonstrated sort of the a, a looseness that's there that might 
not be quite as apparent just reading it in silence. I mean, I'm glad it's around um, the book, but in the in the grand scheme of things, could I give it a, a grade of B? Mm. I guess Catcher in the Rye gets a B. J- I mean, or, or, or to put it this way, who were uh, like, but I mean, I'm judging him alongside. Well, I mean, who were Salinger's contemporaries? I guess you know Norman Mailer's first book came out in 1948. Jack Kerouac's uh, had just. What was Jack Kerouac's book before On the Road? Was it Big Sur? Mm-hmm. Um, it, was, it was coming out about now. I don't know. You know, Philip Roth still ten years away. Who 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 are Salinger's contemporaries? Is a question. I, I would think uh, at this point, late forties, early fifties. He's really an odd case as a writer, isn't he? Because he's sort of like part. He's part New Yorker yes, writer right. and part. This isn't quite a young adult book, but it's kind of a young adult book. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose you have. Where, is, is Nabokov writing in English at this point? Yes, but he's in his own case. Right. Well. Yeah. <laughs> Every good writer. Although has, has Nabokov was a big fan of uh, Perfect Day for Banana Fish. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is early for Updike, I would imagine. But as Salinger goes on, Updike does write about him as does Didion and they both regard him as as sub-literary I think Didion more famously than Updike but Updike could be uncharitable when it came to Salinger if I remember correctly Jamie you don't need to solve forever the question of uh, canonicity with uh, the case of in the case of J.D. Salinger but I am curious to know literary sub-literary a meaningful experience for you to read this book or no? Yeah, I was, I was, as I said, I was moved by it. I mean, I can't tell how much of that was, um, again, a sort of against expectation. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm expecting to find something that felt more like uh, young adult literature, mm-hmm. um, but that felt like a, as a kind of miniaturist uh, portrait of a, of a particular kind of relationship with, with loss. Uh, I found it, uh, again, against expectation, I found it quite moving. I mean, this passage here, to me, is a, is a good example of a passage that feels like sort of it would be out of place in young adult literature because there's so many uh, odd features to it. Um, there's a child basically running in traffic or close enough that he's in danger, ignored by his parents. And Holden is, um, hears him singing a, a song that, to Holden's mind, will later learn brings to mind the image of saving a child. And it's just the very incantation of this mm-hmm. lyric makes Holden feel better. Um, and safer uh, and less depressed. Uh, those kinds of kind of unexpected um, ways of limbing the kind of uh, you know psychic curvatures of his emotional life, I, I found uh, again to be um, literary. Mm. I'll conclude by saying um, I I believe in the book, but I think it's in terms of its reception, it's right now experiencing its own Holden Caulfield like adolescence, which is in its in its first uh, 10 to 20 years or more of existence it was the it was the holy adolescent uh, as a book it was a kind of holy adolescent and it was probably received as as a as a totem of 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 authenticity and privileged access to vision or whatever it was and in that sense it was probably read too closely as a book of Holden Caulfield and right now it's in this intermediary space where it could become literary and not subliterary it could become canonical it could be received as a work of adult literature to be written 
by a full adult and for full adults. But that hasn't happened yet. And it's in between those two things, just as Holden is, and we don't quite know what to make of it right now, that, that its initial power, I think, is lost as right. as the source of, a, of of authenticity or voice of a of a sort of semi-universal voice of of adolescent angst but i think that has to be lost in order for it to be taken seriously as a literary performance the way huckleberry finn cannot be regarded as a book about a teenager for teenagers in order for it to emerge as it did as, as the great American novel. I'm not saying that this book will get there, um, and and my own experience of it is exactly that. I, I cannot put away my initial associations with it, but I still find it a, a profoundly moving work of, of writing. Well, Jamie, this was a total pleasure. Uh, it was great hearing what you thought of this novel. Thank you so much for coming in and, and talking with us. Thanks for having me, Troy. I think this is the most bitterly I've ever disagreed with you, but it was still. I don't, I don't think. T- I don't feel like it's a bitter disagreement. I, I think I'm feeling. I, I think you're a complete phony. Well, let's go take it outside. All right. Thanks so much, Troy. It was a total pleasure. That's fun. Thank you for joining us for the Slate Audiobook Club of The Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and uh, we'll see you soon. Slate's Audio Book Club now comes to you on the third Monday of every month. The selection for October is The Anthologist, the newest novel by acclaimed author Nicholson Baker. Pick up a copy of The Anthologist and join the discussion on Monday, October 19th, 2009.